0: to be back with you after having spent a, a week at annual conference. And I want to begin by just giving a shout out to, to Reverend Ida Easley, who is right over there. Hey. Not only does Pastor Ida preach for us and, and always does so in a way that's, that's a, a meaningful but she blesses our congregation in so many ways, and so I'm forever grateful to, to Pastor Ida. Thank you for that. At annual conference, uh, one of the big highlights for us, for Jerry and I, was to hear our son Andrew appointed to serve as associate pastor of Red Mountain United Methodist Church in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, we're just grateful for that. It was wonderful to see the delegation from Red Mountain come over and surround Andrew. They were just excited to meet him, excited about him joining them in ministry. Andrew's up in South Dakota now for licensing school. He'll he'll be back next Sunday, and he'll be with us until the end of July when he then makes the move down to Mesa. So we'll get to see him and send him off. Um, But that was definitely a highlight, and another highlight was for Pastor Tim and and myself as well, for us to be appointed back to Desert Spring United Methodist Church for yet another year. We're grateful for that. Hey, Johnny. Good to see you. Um, At annual conference, we had a lot of meaningful worship services. One of those was the memorial service where, among others, uh, our own Char Brown was remembered and honored, and Jerry and I got to be a part of that. We had a number of our folks from our church who were leaders at annual conference. Um, Phyllis Murray and Kathy morrow led morning prayer and devotionals every day of annual conference. Uh, Jerry Maguire helped the conference to begin to think about what a vital future will look like. During annual conference, we passed a number of resolutions as well. Some of those had to do with church life, and some of those were the church's response to current issues and challenges taking place in the greater culture. When it comes to those resolutions that were responses to what's going on in our world, it's important to know that those responses were our church's prophetic voice uh, to our world. They were not driven by politics or about trying to take a particular political agenda or side, but rather were an attempt for us to discern the will of God in the midst of a world like ours, and to be a moral compass at a time where one is needed. At our best, our debates were not political. They were theological. At our best, we were not trying to take a political side, but were seeking to understand the will and the movement of God and what that means in our world today. That prophetic voice of the church is as important as ever, and so it is a great blessing to be able to be a part of those kinds of discussions and for the church to speak out. And as I was thinking about that, it struck me that what we're doing in those resolutions is pretty similar to what I've been trying to do in this series of sermons: Earthly life, kingdom living, thinking about the difference between the kingdom of God and the ways of the world and what it means to be a Christian who's in the world, not defined by the world, but lives in this world according to the will of God. We've been doing this series by taking a look at parables of Jesus, short stories that have little twists that cause us to think about these matters and what God wants for us. Today's parable, more than any other parable, is one that would be easy to think that it kind of aligns with the ways of the world. It sounds kind of like earthly life. It's a story about a man who calls three of his employees, gives them all a sum of money, each according to their ability, and then leaves. Later returns to see what they have done with the money. Two of them invested the money and gained a good return. And one of them was afraid of losing the money, and so he hid it under his mattress. When the boss called for a meeting to get an accounting of what had happened with the funds, the two who had shown a gain were commended and given a promotion. And the one who hid the money was fired. This just kind of sounds like the way the world works, doesn't it? And yet we know that the kingdom of God is not like business. There's something different about it. The twist in this parable is very subtle. We need to listen carefully. And so let's turn our attention to the reading of scripture. Kim?
1: Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 25:14 through 29. For it is if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded them. He made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will also put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground, here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was mine with my own interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have more will be given, and they will have abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Kim. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. For those of you who are young, you can define what that means. For those of you who are young, what is it that you want to accomplish with your life? What are your hopes and your dreams? What is it that you would like to accomplish? Maybe a successful career, a family, financial security. Those are all good things. But let me ask you this, how is your faith related to that which you hope to accomplish? To those of you who are old, you can define that however you want. To those of you who are old, thinking about your life, what have you accomplished? What were your hopes and dreams and what have you accomplished and how did your faith, impact the decisions you made and the things that you accomplished now I had lots of hopes and dreams when I was young a lot of hopes and dreams and for a long time my dream was to be a professional athlete I worked hard at it through high school and college worked very hard at it but I want to be clear there was no relationship between my faith and my dream of being a professional athlete. It never entered my mind that God would want me to be a professional athlete. In fact, or quite to the contrary, when I was 16 years old, I knew I was called to be a pastor of a church. It's just that I didn't want to do that. I had my own plan, and that was the plan that I wanted to follow. That's what I was going to do. And then, when I was 23 years old, I saw a girl. And she was gorgeous. Still is, by the way. (laughs) Drop-dead gorgeous. She was sitting behind a table at the Campus Christian Center at Northern Arizona University, typing a paper for a friend, and I went over and said, hello. And she said, hi and we started talking and she stopped typing and we talked and we talked and we talked and about an hour later I got up the courage to ask her out on a date and she said when and I said how about right now? (laughs) (laughs) and she said okay and so we went out on our first date and the next night we went out on our second date and the next night we went out on our third date and 72 hours later three days three dates later and I knew She was the one for me. And it didn't take long for me to figure out that God was a part of this. That it was God who was bringing us together. I mean, if you knew our story, our whole story, the whole story around this, you would conclude the same. It had to be God who had brought us together in this way. So you would think, you would think that that would have been enough for me to realize that God had my best interest at heart. You would think that that would have been enough to make me realize that God's plans were good plans for my life. But nope, I had my plan. I knew what direction I was going to go. And Jerry, she was very, very patient. But Let me be clear. I was a Christian. I was a Christian, I believed in Jesus and I knew that the Christian life required something of me and so I was kind and I was helpful and I was forgiving. I was a pretty good guy, but when I look back upon that time of my life, if I'm going to compare my life to a house, I would say I had invited Jesus into my house. And then I left him standing in the entryway. Never invited him to sit down on the couch in the living room or around the table in the kitchen or anywhere else. I left him standing there in the entryway. And he was able to bless me from there, and he did. But I'd also have to say that this investment that he was making in me, this grace that he was pouring into my life, this investment that he was making into me, wasn't given much of, wasn't providing much of a return for the kingdom of God. And I suspect my story isn't just my story. I suspect my story is a lot of his stories. For a lot of us, you know, we've invited Jesus into our life but then left him standing at the entryway. It's not like we've invited him into all of our life. And maybe our lives don't really do that much. For the kingdom of God. Jesus wants so much more for us than just to be in the entryway. And so he tells some stories to his disciples. The setting is that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. His disciples are gathered around him. It'll be just a matter of a couple of days until he's arrested and crucified. He told his disciples that he was going to die. And he also told them that he would return again someday. And they wanted to know when he was going to return and how, how they would know that it was the time. And so that's when Jesus launches off into one of his longest teachings in all of the gospels. We call it his eschatological discourse eschatological. This is a long word that, you know, I paid a lot of money in seminary to learn, and it simply means thinking about when Jesus returns. They wanted to know about when he would return. And for them, they were sitting on pins and needles listening to his words as he talked about those times. Because for them, They could only imagine that that return would be soon after he had died. And so they had this sense of immediacy about the words that he was speaking. And now, some 2,000 years later, we may not have that same sense of immediacy when we think about Christ returning. But I suspect that all of us can imagine this. Imagine one day standing before the Lord offering the Lord what you've made of your life. Can you imagine that? Standing before the Lord, offering the Lord what you've made of your life. With that sense that we hear Jesus' parables, he told a whole series of parables in this eschatological discourse. One of them was about ten bridesmaids who had lamps filled with oil to light the way for the groom. The groom was delayed. Five of the bridesmaids had brought extra oil, so they were fine waiting. Five of them didn't, and they ran out of oil. And so they left to go get more oil, and while they were gone, the groom arrived, and they end up missing the whole thing. And it doesn't take too much of a study of the Gospel of Matthew to begin to realize that the oil represents good works, that our good works light the way for the coming of the Lord. Then Jesus tells another one. It's about him coming in glory on the clouds and separating the sheep from the goats. Remember, he says... I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was in prison and you visited me. Lord, when did you, we see you in any of those conditions? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of one of these, my children, you did it unto me. And we see how important it is to Jesus That we respond to those who are most vulnerable in our community. We see how important it is to Jesus that we're meeting the needs of those who are most fragile in this world. But I need to pause for a second because at this point, it sounds kind of like works righteousness. All this talk about good works, you got to do all these good works. It sounds like we got to earn our ticket to heaven. So it's important to remember that Jesus is with his disciples. That's the only people who are there, the people who already believe in him, who have already chosen to follow him. That's who he's talking to. This is insider talk. He's not trying to help them understand how one becomes a Christian. We know how to become a Christian. It's a free gift of God. God's pouring this grace upon us. All we do is we accept this gift that God's given to us. All required is that we believe. We say yes to all that God's doing. It's simple. We just say yes. This grace pouring down upon us. Jesus isn't trying to help us understand how to become a Christian. He's talking to Christians. Trying to help Christians understand what a Christian life looks like. And so... He tells another parable about a man who calls together three servants and gives them money as he leaves. And this man, we're supposed to think of Jesus. He's already told them he's leaving, and so now he tells a story about a man who's going to leave. And so this is Jesus, and he gives money, he gives gifts to his servants. And guess who they are? That's you and me. okay? He gives us these gifts. And then in the story we hear that when Jesus returns he gathers us together to see what we have done with these gifts that he's given us. And it seems like a very good question to ask. What is this thing that he's given us? I mean if When he returns, he wants to know what we did with it. It'd be good to know what it is, right? And if he expects us to grow this thing that he's given us, it would be good to know what it is. So what is it that he gave us? Well, a lot of preachers preaching on this parable will say that the parable is about spiritual gifts, that God gives us spiritual gifts. And it's easy to see why a preacher would go there because in the story we hear that that the master gives the servants talents and we all have been given talents, we all have special abilities and we can use those things to build up the body of Christ and it can bear good fruit for the kingdom. So it all kind of makes some sense. We can make some sense out of all of that. Except we know that in the story, talent is a certain amount of money. And it's supposed to help us understand that Jesus has given us something very, very valuable. So what is it that's most valuable that he has given to us? What is it that's the most valuable thing he has given to us? The gospel. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This grace that's poured out upon us freely. The proclamation of the kingdom being at hand. This is the stuff that he's given to us. This grace that he's poured out upon us. We've received the gospel. Here's another way to think about it. Jesus, who continues to pour grace upon us. He continues to pour grace upon us. And the Christian life has to do with us investing that same grace in other people's lives until Christ returns. It's just that simple. What we have received, we invest in other people until he returns. And Christ wants us to be all in. Not just to be in the entryway of our lives, but for every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives employed in offering this grace. Giving witness to the work of God in our lives. And it's when our whole life, every aspect of our lives, is employed in the work of God. That two talents become four talents. That five talents become Ten talents. There's another scripture in the Gospel of Matthew that captures the the, really the essence of what Jesus is talking about in this parable. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, the fifth chapter, right after the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nobody lights a lamp to hide it under a bushel, but puts it on a stand so it gives light for all of the house to, to see Let your good works shine before others, that in seeing them, they will give glory and honor to God. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen.